Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to 3 Plus 4. The perfect podcast does exist. All right, we're back, and this is Dave and Dave. Um, so, Dad, right before we left last time, you said you wanted to talk about, well, it was Numbers 22, the uh, the story of um, the, the prophet and his donkey. I didn't say I wanted to talk about it. I brought it up as an example of something, um, <laughs> and I don't really remember at the moment even what my uh, the reason for the um, why you brought it up. Well, I do. Uh, I, yeah, it seems it's okay. I, it's coming back to me that uh, I was trying to say that there are times. Uh, in the Bible, where God has said yes, but then he's been angry about it. <laughs> um, he allowed something. Uh, you know, it, it almost strikes me as a little bit passive-aggressive. Um, but he allowed, uh, what is it, Balaam to go in and say something. He said, but don't you dare say anything other than what I've told you. But I think this um, meeting on the road was kind of like letting him know that he was on thin ice. And he orchestrated it in such a way that uh, the donkey basically uh, kept the prophet alive and then uh, spoke to him and said, hey, why are you, why are you so mad? Took, took abuse for it. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> And we do have uh, later the, um, uh, what is it, the scapegoat concept? Um, yeah. Perhaps the the donkey taking the beating for someone else's sin was a uh, type of Christ. Well, the scapegoat definitely was. I, I do know that. Okay. So, I mean, you were, you were pointing out uh, this, but I don't, I don't really know that it causes any of the interpretations I've put forward a problem. Um, it is an interesting uh, passage, but I kind of wanted to talk about a principle today. I want to talk about the idea that uh, uh, this is, you know, what um, one of the things I learned from listening to the Rush Limbaugh broadcast when I was uh, young and, and riding in the car with you to school and so forth. And that is um, young and impressionable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I took a lot from that. Uh, but in this particular thing, the way that Rush Limbaugh defined a conservative is that a conservative is a person who believes that words mean things, and that the the definition of every word is set at the time of its authorship. Like when you write something, the appropriate question to ask is not "What does this mean to me?" It is what does this mean? And so the question, um, well, more, more specifically, what is the message that the author is trying to uh, portray to us? What is, the, what is the author saying? And what does he mean when he says, says these words? I think that's a particularly important um, when we look at the Bible, it, especially when we realize that it was written, uh, you know, many of these books were written thousands of years ago. And one of the things that I found in Scripture, and this is uh, kind of a, a response to one of the criticisms, is that uh, <clears throat> uh, people think that the Bible either changes or is un, uh, unknowable because of translation. But I actually think that the Bible is designed to survive translation, specifically when we look at things like... Um, Parables, you know, when Jesus tells us a parable about sheep and vineyards and all these kinds of things, fathers and sons, um, it translates well because that's common to the human experience, right? Everyone has a father, uh, father. Everybody at least knows families, um, even if you don't have uh, children of your own. You know somebody with children. Uh, you know, kind of how people. Uh, deal with family and how people care about family. It's one of the most important things to almost everybody. 
Um, and then of course the farming, the working the land, uh, the idea of, uh, dealing with sheep, dealing with, uh, and, and even if it's not sheep, like you, a lot of those, uh, uh, lessons are common to cattle and horses and things like that. Um, the working the land and, uh, farming, uh, particularly vineyards and farming, uh, planting seeds and then reaping a crop. All of those things are very common, right? So the idea is that um, in those particular passages, they're designed so that once you translate it from one nation, one language to the next, that the messages, the main messages will survive. One of the greatest um, uh, examples of that is actually, I think, the parable of uh, Jesus told a parable where there were two men who owed money. One owed a lot and one owed a little. And then it's interesting because it's actually mistranslated in a lot of Bibles. The, the man comes and says to the two men, I freely forgive your, your debts. Uh, and then the question Jesus asks is, which one of these men will love him the most? The man that forgave their debts. The one who owed a little or one who owed a lot? And the idea is the one who owed more will uh, love more. And in many uh, characteristics, it is, it is actually um, mistranslated. One who, is, one who loves more will be forgiven more. But it's actually, that's not the message. The message is that one who is forgiven more will love more. In other words, the forgiveness, how much you forgive, is the um, independent variable. And the, how much they love you in return is the dependent variable versus the other way around. Um, it was one of the first things I was able to kind of recognize as far as mistranslation goes. And, and you can look at different translations. Some of them gets it right. Some of them get it wrong. Um, <clears throat> but you know what the actual message is because it was given in a parable that is relatable. And you can understand all of the, uh, the components of the parable, which I think is particularly neat. Um, when you come to the law, it's actually a little bit different. But I found that Interestingly enough, the law is able to define itself, and this is actually something we do in modern law. Um, when you write a when you write a, a new law, one of the things they, de- they they do is they spend a lot of time defining the terms of the law, because you uh, obviously uh, one of the things that law runs afoul of is lawyers, right? And lawyers like to define terms in the most, uh, well, differently, depending on their point of view. So, in other words, a lawyer will, if they are trying to get their uh, client off of a charge, they will define all of the words in the way that is the most advantageous to their client. If they're trying to convict someone, they'll do the exact opposite, and they'll define all the terms uh, in the way that is uh, least advantageous to their target. So you have to make sure that those terms are defined before uh, the lawyers get a hold of it. Otherwise, what's the point of writing it down? Um, so anyway, the, uh, this is basically something that uh, I've noticed. That, uh, now, there is a kind of a fly in the ointment. And that is that there's a New Testament passage that says arguing about the definition of things is useless. Is uh, making arguments based on the definition is what does it say exactly? Do you remember? I'm not aware. You said New Testament passage. Oh yeah, it's a New Testament passage. Um, I I was thinking there about uh, um, Ecclesiastes, where it says of books and learning there is no end, mm-hmm. uh, but the Best thing for a man is a good hard day's work and a good night's sleep. Um, but I don't think that has anything to do with what you're trying to get across right now. Sorry. Uh, um, what is it now you're saying? Uh, yeah, I think Tim, uh, it was probably one of the Timothys. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. but it. Um, so let's say Paul was writing to Timothy and he said that... Uh, 
be careful about those who argue about the definition of words uh, because it does not edify those who hear it. Is that, uh, does that make sense? Is that ringing a bell? Uh, no. Timothy 2.14, perhaps. Second Timothy 2.14. Let me take a look at this. Um, King James, of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Uh, let's look for a different version. Okay, so you're, uh, what was the passage again? Second Timothy? Second Timothy 2, 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit. Um, King, uh, let's try this one. Uh, charging them before the Lord they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. So basically the idea is um, there, was a, there was a tradition at the time uh, known as sophistry. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I'm seeing here at the end of this, but to the subverting of the hearers. In other words, what Paul seems to be saying here is that um, uh, be careful uh, about those that strive about what words mean to no profit, but they're attempting to subvert the hearers. Mm -hmm. And then a really important verse, study to show thyself approved unto God, a work that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, what uh, Paul was saying here was that the important thing is uh, studying God's word with the attitude of wanting to discern God's will rather than trying to find ways to explain it away. Okay. Could, could I give you an example of that? Sure. This was years ago. I was a minister of youth at a church, and the pastor of the church sent me to a place called Lake Wales for a, uh, <clears throat> a, a weekend seminar for, well, it, I, I guess it was supposed to be scriptural training. Uh, they had this one fellow there who was a professor at a seminary, and... Um, he taught a, a whole session on um, how to interpret God's word. And the, the one lesson that I remember hearing about was he said, well, look, for example, it says, let not many of you be teachers. And then he said, now that was at the time when uh, Paul and Timothy and the others were, were there and uh, people were striving to be teachers so that they could be lifted up and thought of as uh, great men, he said. But in our day, we need a lot of teachers. So uh, the, the way you would interpret this scripture, he said, was that it really is saying to us today, let as many of you as can be teachers. And what he did was he changed the meaning entirely of the scripture you know, bald-facedly, without any uh, any shame at all, to have it say the opposite thing. And I just was sitting there thinking, wow, you know, you're too, uh, I mean, you're too slick for me. I, I don't want to get into an argument with you, because I know that the verse that says, let not many of you be teachers, is a serious admonition, uh, basically saying, if you decide to become a teacher, you're going to be held accountable for what you teach the people that you're teaching. And that's not at all what he, he twisted it around. Uh, and that, I believe, is an example of this uh, uh, striving about words to no profit and, and with the with motivation uh, to subvert the hearers. Mm. Where in the next verse, Paul says, study, study. To show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, 
but that instead rightly divides the word of truth. Well, so the, the and, and that's that's the contrast there. Okay, David, back to you. I'm the, sorry. No, no worries. The question that comes to mind though is, how many whales were in that lake? How many what? How many whales were in that lake? How many whales were in L.A.? Were in that lake, Lake Wales. <laughs> David, I think that I'll go and cry or maybe <laughs> wail someplace about that one. Uh, that one was just bad. Right, right. So um, in in the first century, there was actually the uh, uh, the the concept of sophistry, which is the idea of basically arguing, uh, using the definition of words and saying, it, it, you will see this a lot of times as kind of very, um, is a very common uh, modern uh, style of arguing that people will use. Um, it, it seems to demonstrate a lack of understanding on the part of the people who are using it, but they'll say, well, you know, if this means this, then this means that, and this means the other, then by the definition, uh, we're going to argue that uh, A plus B equals C, right? So they, they put together, they, they frame the argument by defining the words the way they want to, and then they say, you know, and this is the result, and you can't disagree with me because this is just the definition of these words. Um, it, it seems to be very common. Uh, you'll, you'll get that a lot. I don't want to call things out, but you'll get that a lot with the... Uh, the gender studies crowd, and you'll get that with um, oh, who else? Who else does it? Um, uh, but anyway, you'll you get the lot with these these various groups, and then they'll uh, oh oh here's a good one. Um, have you have you heard of a scientist who says that a theory is really um, the uh, the highest form of scientific understanding? That the, you can't use uh, it's improper to say just a theory because a theory has, um, you start with a, what a, uh, a thesis and you then do some experimentation and theories don't become theories until they've been tested and, and somewhat proven by the experimental data. And so you can't say it's just a theory because it's, it's really the highest level of scientific understanding. And so by redefining the term theory, they uh, are trying to bolster their argument. Uh, so I actually I took it upon myself to go back and check out what the word theory means and kind of do the uh, historical investigation. And as it turns out, the term, the word theory simply translates to idea. The ancient Greeks actually had this, uh, this notion that there were two worlds. There was the empirical world, the real world that lives outside of us, and then there's the theoretical world that is inside of our minds. And their whole purpose, the whole point of philosophy, was to make the theoretical world match the empirical world. And this is the, um, this is the discipline out of which the scientific method arises, because you have an idea and you want to test your idea to see if it matches the world outside of you. And so basically the experimental method or the uh, scientific method of experimentation is designed to make the, the theoretical world inside your mind match the empirical world outside of your mind. So uh, when you come to understand that, then, you know, theories uh, can be just a theory. They can be they can match the empirical world around you. It's, uh, it all depends on the idea itself that you're promoting. Uh, so it's not really worthwhile to try to elevate, uh, you know, one idea by calling it uh, an arcane word that few people understand uh, the definition of versus any other idea that may or may not be uh, accurate. So, but that's, that's kind of the, uh, the thing I'm going for here. Um, so I would point out, though, that the kind of the sophistry is what I think Paul is talking about when he says that um, do not be one who strives about words. Uh, but I do think that the definition of words actually becomes important 
So we need to understand what words actually mean. And the, I guess, kind of the counter to this is that a lot of Christian doctrines are wrapped up in a, in, in a single word. And so once you come to realize that an entire doctrine can be wrapped up in the definition of a single word, um, that creates a problem because then uh, you have two people who will read a passage differently based on what they think a word means. And if you are putting your entire doctrine into a single word in a, in a passage of Scripture, I would argue that um, you're making a mistake. What do you think about that? Um, David, I've got to say I agree. Um, the, the Bible, uh, well, okay, well, it's Christian doctrine is robust and uh, none of the doctrines that we hold dear or that are essential to being <clears throat> saved, developing a relationship with God uh, through Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross are uh, hang by a thread of one passage. In other words, there's a robustness and a um, uh, an assurance that these things are um, uh, talked about in more than one place in, mm-hmm. in the Bible. In- interesting. Um, and I think I, <laughs> I've got a kitty here uh, asking me for I don't know, attention. Um, I think that that uh, that's a good point, that they, they are in more than one spot, but I also think that um, anytime that something is called a sin, it's defined. Uh, and, and so I think, like, for instance, if you look at uh, homosexuality, right, it says it doesn't just leave it up to a word like that for us to know what it means. It says, if a man lies with a man as if with a woman. So in other words, it kind of describes in a way that we are able to start to understand. Um, there is another passage, I think, which is kind of interesting. It says um, that if a virgin acts like a harlot while she still lives in her father's house, yeah, this is defined as a great sin. And so it actually brings up a couple of questions. Um, so in, in this particular passage, I'm going to reference uh, Deuteronomy 22.15. And I believe that this is, uh, it gives us a couple of things here. So it's going to define the word virgin for us. Um, because basically the idea is that if a woman lies with a man and uh, she bleeds, lies with her husband and she bleeds, that she was a virgin. And then it actually says, uh, you know, if the man is unhappy with his wife and he accuses her of not having been a virgin when he came to her, um, that he's supposed to take her to her parents' house. And her parents are supposed to be the ones who have taken the sheet, the, the marriage, the bed sheet of their marriage, and they're the ones entrusted with it because uh, it is important for her uh her life at, at this point under the law, uh, that this proof be readily available uh, and uh, held by someone who is trustworthy to, to hold it, right? So it actually says in this particular verse, um, it doesn't say that the blood is proof of virginity, although it is translated often as proof of virginity. But if you look at that, most of the time the the term proof of is actually italicized. And what that tells you is that those words don't actually exist in the original text. So what the original text is actually saying is that the blood is the virginity. Um, I think this is actually interesting because we have a lot of these, like we have the movie, the 40 year old virgin and things like that, which would kind of indicate that virginity is some kind of ephemeral concept. Like a person who just hasn't had sex is a virgin. 
But if you look at the scriptural definition here, and, and specifically in this uh, passage in 2215, it's defining for us that virginity is a verifiable physical characteristic. And as it turns out, it's only applicable to women. Uh, men are never virgins. And I think this is, um, uh, there's quite a few of these kind of uh, words that I've gone through and I've found, and I think that it is important. Uh, I think that we really, we're missing some of the meaning of Scripture when we miss what these words mean. Um, what do you think? I, I, I want to kind of let you uh, open it up and, and let you uh, disagree with anything I may have said if you do and uh, confirm if you agree. <laughs> uh, David, to tell you the truth, I haven't really thought about this uh, particular aspect of human relationships that much. Mm -hmm. um, I know that um, supposedly um, there is a hymen and that uh, there will be uh, some signs that uh, the woman was a virgin or had was had not had sexual relations before. Well, I'm not. Um, I'm not trying to uh, make you uncomfortable here. Uh, the The idea yes, is that I, it, I, it's not applicable. I to men. kind of wish, David. Uh, let ahead. me just put this in that you might find some different aspect to try to make your point here. Um, mm. I, I, because if this is the only aspect that you have where this point can be made, then I would like to talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <clears throat> I understand how you feel. Uh, there, there's a, this is actually, um, this particular verse holds quite a few definitions. So, uh, for instance, it says uh, that a, a virgin who acts like a harlot while she still lives in her father's house. I don't see that here. Uh, let's see here. Am I, I'm oh, I'm referencing a. Uh, I'm actually not uh, looking at it, so let me. I'm I'm doing it from memory, but I know pretty pretty sure I know what it says. Well, what's the uh, uh, address of the passage? <clears throat> Deuteronomy 22.15 is where it starts. Okay. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders uh, at the gate the proof that she was a virgin. Um, well, okay. King James actually says, shall bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city and the gate. Right. And it doesn't even say what the tokens are. It just says, bring the tokens. And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to wife, and he hateth her. And it, notice that the tokens of is italicized, right? The, no, I don't see any italics. Uh, uh, my version isn't giving me that. Oh, okay. Well, in the King James Version, uh, generally speaking, they italicize that uh, when the, ver the words that they've inserted into the English to make it make sense to us, don't actually exist in the original text. So um, okay, it, but uh, I mean the the term tokens tokens of the damsel's virginity appear both in verse fifteen and then again in verse seventeen. Are they italicized in both spots? I think so, but let me uh, <clears throat> let me get on Bible Gateway because I'm actually okay. uh, the thing about Bible. Uh, the the online Bible verses is that they literally, like if you look up Deuteronomy 22.15 and you go to like Biblia or Bible Gateway or whatever, it will give you 10 versions of the exact same verse and there's no easy way to say go to the next verse. Like, I want to go to the next verse and they're not letting me do it. And let's see here. Well, you could... 
get yourself a Bible. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm being a bit of a smart aleck here. Well, that's that has the drawback of only being of one interpretation. So, in other words, all right. So, twenty-two. Uh, let's try. All right, here we go. And then the father of the damsel and her mother shall bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity. Now, in this particular uh, version, it doesn't italicize this, but uh, I'm going to assume that the tokens are italicized in each spot. Uh, the damsel's father saying to so, the elders. So we're making an assumption that there are italics. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm going from, uh, so I know for a fact in verse 15, they're italicized, and uh, that it doesn't exist in the original text. And I believe that is the case of the other one as well, but I didn't uh, investigate that. So um, the idea is that, in fact, it's not even saying this is the token or proof of virginity. It's saying this is the virginity. Like, it's, it's not... Um, it's not a token. It's the thing itself. Does that make sense? Uh, well, David, David, what is your point here? I am. I'm getting to that. Uh, okay. so my point is. My point is actually just in understanding the text, and in understanding the definitions. Right. So in understanding what the actual word means. Um. So then it says uh, in sixteen. Let's move on to the next verse. And the damsel's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter this man. To wife, he hath hated her, and lo, he hath given occasion of speech against her, saying, I found not thy daughter a maid, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity. Again, um, tokens, probably not there. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city, and the elders of the city that uh, shall take that man and chastise him, um, and they shall immerse him in... Uh, Amherst, I believe that means to pay back uh, him in a hundred shekels of silver and give them unto uh, the father of the damsel because he hath brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife he may not put her away all his days but if this thing be true then the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel uh, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of the father's house and the men of the city, city shall stone her with stones uh, that she die. Because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play, or in, in many uh, versions it says act like. <clears throat> um, where'd it go? The, to act like the whore. Mm, uh, it, act like the, the whore in her father's house so thou shalt... Uh, so shalt thou put away evil from among you. Now, again, whore is probably, that's a King James word, but let's say uh, in the original texts or, or in other texts, it says something like harlot. And I actually think that this particular word is an interesting word because it comes up in a lot of places where you wouldn't expect it to come up. And... Uh, this is this is another one of those words that I think we don't understand the definition of. And my definition of the word, which I would maybe translate harlot instead of whore, um, is that this is a single woman who doesn't live with her father anymore. This is a single woman on her own, just a woman who's out in the world able to do what she wants to do. And I think that the idea... Well, there's there's heavy interpretation involved in this uh, uh, translation here. This is my this is my thesis. <clears throat> so the question is, if it is a sin to act like the harlot while she still lives in her father's house, is it wrong for the harlot to act like a harlot? And let's say that the harlot is a single woman. Is it? Uh, is it folly or sin for a single woman to act like a single woman? It 
so that's that's kind of the question. I'm I'm wondering uh, how you feel about that. Uh, David, I I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay, I've uh, you, you've you I think have uh, exhibited uh, looking at you know. Um, the definition of words to the point of subverting this to having it say something uh, other than I believe what God would would want us to know <clears throat> or say about this. Well, I I disagree with that. That's it is exactly why I brought that up um, before we started on this, right? Because I think we need to know what these verses are actually saying. Um, I, I think that it's, you know, this is the Old Testament law. And, you know, what is it that, uh, uh, what is it they say, that the law of the Lord makes the foolish man wise or the simple man wise? Um, I think in, in thinking about these things and coming to understand these nuances... Um, that that is important. That's really part of the reason that this law is here is for us to analyze it and to, to come to understand the nuance that exists within this law. So, for instance, <clears throat> and and I think law is uh, kind of a great point. If if there is in our modern law, uh, a, a crime that includes conditions. And let's say that there are uh, three conditions of a, of a particular crime and that those conditions are not all met. We know that someone is innocent, right? I... I I'm I'm sorry, David. I, I'm not following here. Well, uh, okay. I, we have <clears throat> um, uh, under the common law standard, one of the conditions of arson is that it be committed at night. And so if somebody burns down a building in the middle of the day, technically it's not arson. It may be vandalism and many other things, but uh, it's not arson. Uh, so the question, and, and I think, of course, that would uh, vary by state uh, because some states have defined that particular condition out of arson. But let's say you're, you're in the 1800s and uh, somebody comes along and burns a building down in the middle of the day and the charge is arson. Well, then technically they, they would be found innocent because they may have burned down the building. They may have intentionally done so. But they didn't do it in the middle of the night, so it's not uh, the common law crime of arson. What I'm looking at here is not, I'm not looking for a technical uh, way to get somebody off of a crime, but I am looking for what the, what the actual required elements are. And then in, in looking at this, this is, um, it says very specifically, uh, <clears throat> she hath wrought folly in Israel to act like a harlot while she still lives in her father's house. So, uh, show, so shalt thou put evil away from among you. And so, in other words, if this is a particular thing that is evil or uh, sinful, a great sin, then what I want to do is I want to understand what it is. And then also one of the things you can do to understand what something is uh, is by analyzing what it isn't. So um, the idea that the, this is a law for virgins, like this is a particular folly for a woman who is living in her father's house. Let's say that you have an orphan who... Um, her father has died and she no longer has the protection of her father and she grows up uh, unable to protect herself. 
and then she gets married, would she even be subject to this? And the answer to that, I think, is clearly no. She's not subject to this because she did not have the protection of a father and did not live in her father's house. And so, therefore, if she has gone and done something or if something's been done to her, that there's no folly. There's no, she would be held blameless in this particular case. Um, I think that gets into a lot of common uh, tropes about uh, fatherless behavior and things like that. But, I mean, uh, so to me, I guess the answer is if she really is fatherless, then uh, there was no one there to explain to her what it is that she should have been doing, and uh, she can't be held responsible for it. So I'm, I'm looking at this and wondering what is the limit of these verses. And I think this, it's important and it's interesting. And there are a lot of definitions that you can kind of glean from these few verses. What do you think about that, that concept of perhaps holding harmless a, a young lady who doesn't have a father to teach her uh, these items? Okay. Um, David, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for my sins. What does that mean? It says in James that if you would keep the whole law, but yet offend in one point, you're guilty of it all. And the truth is, none of us are able through our own efforts to live a life that causes us to be acceptable to God. All of us need to have um, the filter of Jesus' blood through which God looks at us to see his righteousness. And whether it's one sin or a million sins that Jesus is forgiving us, we need that forgiveness. Now, um, the, uh, I must confess that I live my Christian life in such a way that a lot of times I don't ask myself, am I sinning in this? Um, I do from time to time, uh, get God's prompting that <clears throat> I've gone off the beam. And then I use First John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I place my trust that if there's something that I've done that's causing a barrier between, com- uh, a barrier of between the communication between me and God, that God will prompt me in that and, and uh, let me know that I need to 1 John 1, 9 that. Um, but I don't spend a lot of time worrying about what is sin. I spend instead time worrying, what does God want me to do? Now, I know maybe worry is a very strong word there because I know, and I believe you know too, because, I mean, you grow up with me, that um, God can get anything done he wants, and he can get rocks to do it if he wants. He lets us be involved with him in, I'm going to call them spiritual projects, because he loves us and uh, because it's good for us and it draws us closer to him. And I believe that the actual thrust of a Christian's life should not be trying to decide, well, can a woman be a prostitute if she is doesn't have a father and mother to live with. I mean, <clears throat> I, I don't think that matters. I think what matters is what is in your heart and are you seeking to fellowship with God or are you looking for a way out of some legalistic viewpoint so you can do something that your heart tells you is wrong? Well, actually... I think that, um, I mean, you just used the term prostitute. And I think my I part of my point is that she's not a prostitute. And 
I'm going to go somewhere next that I think maybe you'll like a little bit better. And that is, um, I can't remember the name. Who is the young lady <clears throat> who was in the Faith Hall of Fame and yet everyone thinks she was a prostitute? Rahab. Rahab. And she was called a harlot. But that doesn't mean, okay, so in the, the English interpretation is harlot. <clears throat> but the original word, I do not believe, means prostitute. I believe it means a single woman. And that the definition or the interpretation, translation of that word was messed up. And so now we are accusing one of the most righteous women listed in, in, uh, in Scripture of being a in, prostitute. In the Faith Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, well, in the Faith Hall of Fame of being a prostitute for no reason. And that's that's where we I mean if if there's anything that I think that you could agree upon is that we wouldn't want to call a righteous woman a prostitute for for just our misunderstanding. So in other words, it becomes important to understand these words. Otherwise, we are casting dispersions upon poor Rahab and all she did was <clears throat> uh hide the Jewish spies. And it, it seems clear that she had a textile type uh, concern. Like her, her, <clears throat> her work was either making rugs or uh, linen cloths or, or something like that. She was some kind of a, a textile manufacturer in her home. Um, and it didn't, doesn't seem that she got any of her money from, untoward activities. What do you think about that? Maybe maybe clearing somebody's name is uh, a good way to go with this. Now, I think it's also important because we're going to go back to Samson. And Samson laid with a, a young lady that's called a prostitute or translated as prostitute in many, uh, many, many translations. But... Maybe she wasn't a prostitute either. Maybe she was just a woman who fancied Samson. And I, it does not tell us that any money, uh, any money traded hands in that particular situation. So now we've got at least two women who are probably being maligned because of the uh, early 16th century understanding of, of these words and their kind of um, uh, their belief in, in you know, what they thought was a term that uh, almost certainly cast dispersions all by itself. In other words, I don't think they were right about what that word meant. So that's where we're getting to. Is that, is that better, at least, as a, as a goal? I mean, could you agree that, um, you know, we would... Want to maybe clear Rahab's name? Um, <laughs> David, I got to tell you the truth. It doesn't matter much to me. <laughs> yeah, well, but that's the thing. Like, uh, you could you could really argue that almost none of this matters. I mean, anytime you go earlier than Matthew, you could just eh, it doesn't matter. But that's well, no, no, I don't think you can argue that. Um, well, I don't know. You're pretty but, close to it. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, I I have wondered. Uh, okay, um, I it, behind the scenes as I read the scripture, I try to discern what God means by what He has written in the book, and you know when I don't understand something, I ask the Lord if he will uh, give me understanding about it, and then I patiently wait until he does. And um, the, the thing about Rahab that concerns me is that um, I know in my heart that situational ethics are wrong. In other words, I know it's wrong to do something that is definitely sin in a situation 
to attempt to bring about something that's good. And the Bible even tells me clearly that that's the case, because it says, cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. Now, um, I do not understand how Rahab got into, well, I, okay, I have maybe a bit of a partial understanding, but it, it still seems to be a tough one to me that she was in the Faith Hall of Fame. It says, was not Rahab uh, justified by works when she, uh, when she hid the, uh, the observers from Israel and sent the, uh, the soldiers away? Now, what she did was she lied to the soldiers. She said, they're not here. They went that way, and if you hurry, you might be able to catch them. It's a lie. Now, I don't mind so much that she lied, but what I would like to know is if she had wanted to honor the Lord, what would have been better for her to do? See, now, uh, an example that I think might come to bear here, but I, 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 I don't know how it fits, kind of, is there is a an individual named Brother Andrew who was in the habit of smuggling Bibles into Russia. Now, smuggling is breaking the law. And so what he did was he would drive up to the gate and he would say, Lord, I'm praying for you to make seeing eyes blind. And then he would put the Bibles right out on the seat next to him. And the Lord would work a miracle to get him through. Now, there are stories about, you know, the soldiers would stop the car in front of it and just tear it all apart, even have the upholstery out on the ground and stuff like this. And then they, uh, you know, they might find something or they might not. And the, the guy would drive on and then he would drive up and get the Bibles right there on the seat. And, you know, he would show them his passport or whatever, and they would just wave him on through. And then they would do the same thing to the guy right behind him that they did to the guy in front of him, tearing his car apart as he was driving away. So, in other words, God chooses to do what God chooses to do. And I don't have a problem that God chose to honor Rahab, but I, I suspect that if there were a, that, that there would be a way to even activate God's mighty power in a mightier way, by not lying, maybe by, I don't know, maybe by saying, come and look. And, uh, you know, having the, the soldiers come in and just totally not see the men that were there, having them sit at the table or something like that, like Brother Andrew's Bibles on the seat next to him. I don't know. But you see, the thing is, um, God chooses to work with each one of us. And, uh, you know, if he tells me that I should or shouldn't do something, then I need to do that. But I've learned <clears throat> an awful lot of times he doesn't want me going around telling other people what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, it says, therefore, to him who knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And notice also, it's about doing good, not about abstaining from sin. It's therefore to him who knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. Okay, but um, uh, in other words, the way that you act in the world, uh, I don't know that. Uh, you know, we are human beings, right? Like, uh, I don't know if. Um, it, I don't see much difference between doing good and not doing sin. So in other words, if, as you live your life, as you go through the world, um, if you are acting and avoiding sin at the same time, then you are basically doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, I, would, I would add two data points. Um, you know, the, the midwives in Egypt who lied to the Pharaoh and said, Oh, we tried to murder these babies, but uh, 
the uh, the 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 women are just too robust, and they have the kids before we get there. And then I would also add uh, anybody who did anything good during the Nazi regime in World War II, right? So hiding uh, the Anne Franks of the uh, of of Germany in the attic or the basement and saying, "Oh, there's no Jews here." Um, I I wouldn't. I would I would actually argue that that is precedented uh, in Scripture here. That that is. Um, that line to evil men who you know have uh, ill intent uh, in order to save the lives of someone, I would say that that is 100% a justified and uh, blessed David, activity. David, Go ahead. I would probably do that, but I don't know that if that's the best thing now oh it's much better to arm yourself i'm sure so that you can just tell the passage right here david (laughs) just for a second okay okay go ahead psalm 37 verses 3 through 6 trust in the lord and do good so shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed delight thyself also in the lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart commit thy way unto the lord Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. The whole thrust of that verse is not be good and don't be bad. It is seek the Lord with your entire being, and God will lead you and guide you, and he will uplift you and bring forth you uh to others' eyes so that even if they're criticizing you, they're going to be put to shame. So, in other words, if we're calling Rahab a harlot right now, God will rectify that problem, and he will uplift her, and he has already. He put her in the Faith Hall of Fame, and and he will uh, honor her and bring forth her righteousness as the noonday. And so... I'm not that concerned about the words, and I know that God is going to straighten it out. Well, you see, the thing is, I guess I take a more proactive approach. If Okay, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled, interestingly, that there is no word in the Constitution of the United States that is without meaning. So the idea is, if you read the Constitution, like, say, the... Second Amendment or the First Amendment. Or and, the amendment that says something about privacy. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, if you can point that out to me, we'll, uh, we'll read it on the air here. Um, <laughs> so I'm sorry. I, I had to take that shot. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> well, okay. But the point is that if you can read um, any part of the Constitution, if you can read the Second Amendment, and then remove a word, and the removal of that word does not change the meaning, then you've read it wrong. Because every word has to have a meaning. So if you remove part of the meaning, then you've changed um, the, the Constitution itself. Right? So if, you've, if, you have, if you read a part of the Constitution and... A particular word doesn't have meaning. You could read it the same way by removing that word. Then you have nullified part of the Constitution, and that is not acceptable. I think uh, that that is even more so the case for Scripture. If you can nullify or ignore a certain component, uh, then you've you've done something. You've diminished the text, and so. I guess my goal is to understand what it is that God's trying to tell us because I think that the entire uh, scripture is good for doctrine, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. And to either either ignore it or to make it meaningless um, it is a solution to not understanding that I can't accept myself.
What do you think? Uh, I theoretically, I agree <laughs> with you. Uh, actually, I don't see that as a project I want to engage in that much. Okay, well, that was that's kind of you know. Here's the thing: I've done that, and I've I know that we have disagreements, and it, it, it's funny too because I was um, I was talking about our disagreements last week. And you were like, what disagreements? And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's guide you towards one of them. Um, but I know that we have certain disagreements. I think part of it is based off of this idea that I've, I've decided that I want to know what everything means. And I've uh, taken uh, something of a proactive approach towards uh, determining what uh, Scripture means. But I also think it's interesting that... Um, the scripture is sufficient to define itself. So in other words, we don't really need to go off and uh, look elsewhere. If we were trying to figure out what the scripture means, we can do it through something like differential diagnosis. And differential diagnosis is kind of the, the idea. Uh, I think um, House did this a lot on his... Uh, I didn't really watch the show much, but um, you know, if you... If you take a statement and you remove some of the words and it means something different, then you can it, it highlights to you what the words really meant. Or if you, if you read a passage and then you take away a word and it doesn't change the, the definition, then it means you don't know what that word means yet. And if you um, are removing conditions from a statement then you can you can kind of see if you do know what it the the words mean properly you can see how that changes the statement and so particularly when you're talking about um i think the next one i would probably point out is where jesus said that uh, if a man leaves his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality and is joined with another then he commits adultery um you know we would understand that that is written to a man Right, so first off, uh, that is a, a command to a man. The second thing is, you know, if any of those conditions were not met, then he hasn't committed adultery. So let's say that a man uh, leaves his wife, and just because he can't stand her anymore, and he goes and lives the rest of his life in the woods and never has relations with any other woman. Well, he hasn't committed adultery because, I mean, maybe he left, but he didn't leave her for someone else. He just decided he didn't want to be with a woman anymore. So I, I think those kinds of um, alterations of a, of a statement can be illuminative. And that's really what we're going for. That's what I'm, I'm trying to... I think that's also part of applying reason to the text. It's kind of the, the stated goal. Okay, uh, I would say my concern would more be rightly dividing the word of truth. Mm -hmm. I would say that's a synonym for what method, we're trying to do. Well, the method that I would use would be to read the scripture and believe that it means exactly what it says. And if I don't understand exactly what it says, then I would ask God to reveal that to me. And that's pretty much the way I've lived my life for a long time. And God has been faithful. And, and you know, I think God is definitely faithful. And he's, he's giving you a son who's dragging you along and trying to show you what some of those texts mean. I mean, that's, this is an answer to prayer, Dad. <laughs> so you see yourself as the implement of God. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all at certain times? Um, well, David, could I point something out to you? That we've been at this for an hour and five minutes? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It is, we, are, we have come to uh, a, a good stopping your mother, point. Your mother is in the kitchen here, and she does want to talk to me. 
And um, I, I've been motioning her with my hand saying, I, I can't listen to you now. Even though I was sitting here not saying anything, uh, I was listening to you talk. So um, it, it's, it's time for us to wrap this one up. <laughs> All right. Well, we will, uh, we will uh, stop here and we'll continue on next time. And maybe we'll uh, find something that is more interesting or more, uh, I don't know what the word I would use is, but something that will pique your interest and we will uh, get further with. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to 3 Plus 4. The perfect podcast does exist.